0: Welcome to Liberty Relearn, not just another conservative blog. Hi, welcome to the podcast. Uh, today I was watching a video by Jordan Peterson where he interviews Alex Epstein, a fossil fuel apologist and author of The Moral Case for Fossil Fuels. In the interview, Epstein mentioned uh, just how depraved the point of view of some of the climate change Alarmist leaders is, or are. And uh, he mentioned one in particular. Uh, this one was, um, this quote is from David M. Graber back in 1989, where he's doing a book review for the Los Angeles Times. It's uh, on this book by Bill McKimmon called The End of Nature. And so this quote just uh, struck me. Um, with its sheer immorality, and I think you'll see what it means. And so this prompted me to write a piece in my, my blog, uh, Liberty Relearn. So here is the piece from my blog, and it's entitled When Climate Change Alarmism Crosses into Anti-Humanism, A Deeply Immoral Anti-Human Point of View. Climate alarmism is bad enough, but some thought leaders who drive it, who are its philosophical torchbearers, have an even more troubling view of humanity Than that far exceeds the usual misanthropy from, that you might expect from its proponents. This quote comes from a review of The End of Nature by Bill McKibben, published in the Los Angeles Times, written by David M. Graber in 1989. It reflects a deeply immoral philosophy. Here's the quote. That makes what is happening no less tragic for those of us who value wilderness for its own sake, not for what value it confers upon mankind. I, for one, cannot wish upon either my children or the rest of Earth's biota, A tame planet, a human-managed planet be it monstrous or however unlikely benign. McKibben is a biocentrist and so am I. Human happiness and certainly human vicinity are not as important as a wild and healthy planet. I know social scientists who remind me that people are part of nature but it isn't true. Somewhere along the line, about a billion years ago, maybe half that, we quit the contract and became a cancer. We have become a plague upon ourselves and upon the earth. And that is David M. Graber in his article, Mother Nature as a Hothouse Flower, The End of Nature by Bill McKibben. This again is a deeply immoral outlook on life. Sadly... It is shared by a great many of people. Morality in general terms can be thought of to be comprised of two twin values or pillars. The first, how much inaction serves life. And second, how much inaction allows for free will among humans. Both values are equal and mutually reinforcing. The worldview expressed in the quote is an affront to the first pillar of morality, the life pillar. The casual disregard for billions of human lives, when he writes, We are not interested in the utility of a particular species or free flowing river or ecosystem to mankind. They have intrinsic value, more value to me than another human body or a billion of them, is shocking. Even the most generous interpretation of this quote, that the billion human lives that have less value than the ecological purity of a piece of geography are notional lives not yet established, would still be odious. He calls himself a biocentrist. He would claim to be deeply invested in the life pillar, except he values no human life if it is advanced past the point of aboriginal. He speaks of valuing wilderness quote for its own sake, not for what value it confers upon mankind. He forgets or is oblivious to the fact that even in appreciating nature for its own sake suggests a value it confers on humankind. The nature the ability to appreciate Something for its own sake, or for any sake, is an ability possessed by mankind alone, so far as we know. One might put this riddle to him and McKibben. If a tree falls in the woods, and there are no living beings with sentience enough to value it for its own sake, does it have any true value? Graber's notion is also moral with regards to the free will pillar. He despises that which makes humans humans, referring again to his quote, Human happiness and certain, certainly human profundity are not as important as a wild and healthy planet. I know a social scientist who remind me that people are part of nature, but it isn't true. Somewhere along the line about a billion years ago, maybe a half billion, we quit the contract and became a cancer. We have become a plague upon ourselves and upon the earth." Quote. So, what is it that happened a half billion to a billion years ago that is, in his mind, that Graeber believes constitutes mankind quitting the contract, only mankind evolving to the point that it can meaningfully and deliberately enact its free will. That's all. As soon as we are able to express our free will, that apparently is when we broke the contract with life and became a cancer. Our possession of agency is that which not only separates us from the animals, which is that what Graeber and his ilk have a problem with, but also makes us in God's image. Logically, if there is a creator, then he would have a beef with him also. That, if true, would bespeak a tremendous arrogance and hubris on his part. The problem for those possessing greater moral clarity, more regard for human life, is that there are enough people that hold this same nihilistic view who are in control of things like our industry, economy, and governments to do real damage to real human beings. Not notional human beings yet to be born, but living, breathing human beings alive right now. These people created a system by which a country like Sri Lanka could be convinced to commit self-destructive behavior. The resulting poverty and hunger finally drove the people to overthrow their government. Similar people running the Netherlands have decided there are too many farms in their country using farming methods that are too effective. Global organizations and the boardrooms of many a powerful corporation are populated with people holding such dim views of humanity. Imagine if the CEO of a bank with global reach held such anti-human views. Imagine the head of state of whatever country you're a citizen of holding the view that there are just too many humans on the planet. What sort of disastrous policies might they prepare to enact? The unfortunate truth is we don't have to imagine. Economic, agricultural, and energy policy are all being shaped by people who share the view that humankind is a cancer upon the earth. God and sane human beings save us from such people. Amen. And so like I said earlier, when I heard uh, Alex Epstein uh, uh, mention this quote and uh, Peterson recite this quote, I was struck by the sheer immorality of it. Now, like I say in my article, uh, morality, generally speaking, is comprised of uh, two pillars, if you will. Um, the first pillar is the life pillar. Obviously, without life, you cannot have nothing follows uh, for there to be any morality. And the second pillar, is with regards to human beings uh, an action or any action and its ability to uh, allow for human free will or uh, an action that denies it uh, uh, free will and so immorality would be comprised of either or both uh, actions that either uh, destroy life, inherently destroy life, or inherently limit or vastly um, truncate human free will, the ability to, for other human beings to apply reason and problem solve and work out their own uh, values and, and their own priorities and act on, their, on behalf of their own self-interest. And so you have these uh, two forces at work that combine um, to create what we would call morality. And as you can see, um, this quote, um, this person, um, this uh, Graeber person, and also uh, apparently shares this view with uh, Bill McKibben. Uh, who wrote that book that was mentioned, um, they have this deeply nihilistic and deeply anti-human uh, outlook on life. And also, as I mentioned, sadly, it's not uncommon. Um, for instance, can you imagine how many people within the World Economic Forum and or the World Bank or any other um, number of global entities, particularly left-leaning global global entities, where the members share this basic point of view that man, uh, far from being the cure, is actually the cancer, and they believe that the planet would be better off without it, without man. Now, the question of better off for whom, uh, they can't answer. Because, as I mentioned, the value in all of our resources is only um, that which uh, mankind places upon it, okay? You have other animals that are living in nature. They can um, identify the nature of, of you, know, you know, a rock or a tree or a piece of grass And they can understand that to be food or be a danger. You know, some other wild animal, some predator might be a danger. Um, They might see water and understand that they can drink it. And, you know, that uh, too much sunlight is bad for them. Not enough is bad for them. And, you know, the shade is good for getting out of the sun. And uh, the water you know if you can swim is good for cooling off. Okay, so the uh, animals can recognize their environments in such basic terms but they don't have what we would call really an appreciation for those things. They understand that they exist and they understand that their purpose with regards to their survival but they have no really intrinsic appreciation for it. Um, Probably, most likely, the coyote baying at the moon isn't profoundly moved by the beauty of the moon. They are just enacting a visceral reaction uh, caused by it. And so too the other creatures they have a fundamental understanding of the world around them, but that doesn't mean they have an appreciation for it. And I would argue only only human beings have the capacity for appreciation and to understand on a more profound level the beauty and significance of such things in nature. Now, that's not to say that... Our appreciation for nature doesn't uh, lead us to want to preserve it, because of course it does. Um, you know, we need to be good stewards of the world and the world around us and of nature. You know, we, not, we need to take care not to poison our, our rivers and uh, overhunt our wildlife to extinction and not to overfish our oceans and our waters and things like that. We have to be careful not to destroy too many of the trees, lest we be left um, without anything to burn or make houses out of. Okay, so maybe you've seen like... uh, Pictures of Easter Island, and you have these great uh, megaliths there, these great uh, stone stone uh, people uh, faces. And the one thing you you also notice is that they have no trees on that island, that because they destroyed all of their trees, um, either making canoes or just making houses, and they didn't replace it enough and so it is true that mankind can have a detrimental impact on the environment to the extent that it hurts himself and that is something we have to be aware of but that certainly doesn't mean that all of nature has to be left pristine For instance, our farms would not be very effective if we went back to um, the pre-industrial revolution or agrarian era um, ways of farming, much less if we went back to the hunter-gatherer things before there was even any agriculture. Um, But uh, people like um, this Person like uh, McKimmon and Graver, they feel like the earth needs to be in this pristine um, uh, form of nature and pristine state, unta- untouched by human hands. And so the problem with that is obviously, is like, well, we human beings have to inhabit the earth also. And like I said, if we left uh, certain parts of the earth in its pristine uh, natural form, uh, pristine natural state, we would have no such things as farms to raise our food. We certainly wouldn't have enough food to feed 8 billion plus people. And if we even... Uh, resorted, as they did in the people in Sri Lanka, to purely organic methods of farming, that would not be enough to sustain us agriculturally. Now again, um, organic farming is okay, as long as you understand that it has to be economically viable. In other words, people have to be willing to pay extra for organic food. Okay, and that's fine if they do, but you can't expect the entire world to operate that way. We would uh, soon have the kind of starvation that the, uh, these people on the left predicted. Okay, so they have this understanding, this misunderstanding, actually. Uh, it's called um, Malthusian economics, or the Malthusian economic system. Uh, by which the belief is that there are too many people in the world and eventually they're going to outstrip its ability to farm and produce food and that that was what they were saying back in the 60s and 70s that never came to pass. They thought in the 1980s we would have We basically have mass starvation and that never came to pass in fact there are less food. There are less people with food insecurity now than there were uh, back in the '60s, where this notion was first made popular. Uh, even back in 1989, when McKibben and Graver are talking about how we're ruining the planet, and what people like that don't understand is the human capacity to problem solve. They assume. That whatever level of technology we're at now, uh, in this case it would have been the 1980s or 70s, or you understand, that that would never advance. And lucky for us, we are pretty clever animals and we are able to reason out and learn how to advance our agricultural technology and increase our agricultural output to the point where this planet can sustain uh, 8 billion people, where at one point it was thought that we would start running out of food right around 5 or 6 billion people, or maybe even before that. And so these people uh, underestimate the human capacity to adapt and overcome their challenges in the world. And that also extends to the area also... Of climate change where they're talking about the sea level rises and they don't understand that human beings have this ability to adapt as I mentioned um, to overcome like if sea level rises um, people just don't sit there and drown and say oh well I I guess um, we're just gonna have to drown now no they build things like levees and dikes and dams, uh, things like particularly you see in the Netherlands. Most of the Netherlands is below sea level, most of Amsterdam. I think virtually all of Amsterdam, I believe, is under sea level. And hundreds of years ago, they came up with systems of levees and dikes that they have pretty much now, where they're prepared for not just a hundred hundred year flood but a thousand year flood that's what they um, pride themselves in in their um, in in their land development in the Netherlands and also you have all sorts of cultures even back going back to uh, ancient China and uh, South America where they're dealing with problems of land where they're building uh, terraces of farms Uh, on mountains in order to create more arable farmland. And, of course, we've long had the technology to control, again, the the sea level, um, the rise of sea level. And you have uh, cities like Venice that have been coping with the fact of being below sea level for hundreds of years now. And somehow there is still a Venice Right, uh, despite the fact that a lot of it is below sea level, they've um, just replaced their roads with waterways, and their vehicles are you know in to get around Vienna, it, you now have gondolas or water taxis. And there are other uh, countries that have similar systems where basically the primary way of getting around, is by water taxi or by boat. And so um, what the Malthusians believe, um, what they do and what people like these climate change alarmists do chronically is they uh, sell short uh, humankind's ability to adapt, improvise, and overcome in order to solve the problems that Mother Nature throws at it. Some, you know, if the area is too cold, um, we're able to create heat. Uh, we're able to create heaters and stoves and, and things like that so that we don't have to freeze during the cold weather months. And we don't have to migrate to warmer climates as pre-agrarian societies once did. And so we're able to uh, adapt that way. And then as I mentioned, we were able to adapt um in places where there's flooding and there's storms and now less people die of natural disasters now than a hundred years ago. Okay. So the the climate change alarmists want to think of things before the Industrial Revolution. And after it, and they pine for the era of before the Industrial Revolution, before uh, America or the, the uh, civilized world started, um, in their mind, poisoning the world or poisoning the earth or destroying the earth. It's actually that Industrial Revolution that led to advances in technology, that uh, uh, led to uh, hydrological advances. Where we're to the point now, we we can create dams and levees and dikes and things of that mat, uh, nature, where we can we we're not uh, subject to the whims of Mother Nature. Now, of course, Mother Nature is still powerful enough. Um, we've seen in the various tsunamis and earthquakes and hurricanes throughout the year, where. Yeah, you know, we are all but helpless against nature's fury. But what we can do is we can devise ways and systems of evacuating people and detecting storms earlier. These are all things that we have, you know, our weather radar and our satellites and things like that that helps us uh, track storms and predict their land- landfall. Uh, Sometimes even days in advance, if not hours, at least, um, you know, if not days, at least hours in advance. Enough time for people to evacuate. And how many, um, probably tens of, or even hundreds of thousands, maybe even millions of of people throughout the world have been saved through such advances that were only made possible through The technological revolution through the uh, Industrial Revolution and then the Space Age and now the Communication Age and beyond. Um, These things uh, you know these lives are saved not despite our technical advances but because of them and again as I also mentioned we have uh, sophisticated uh, methods of farming uh, involving satellite data and soil analysis, and biochemistry, and regular chemistry, and working out what is the optimal yield, and uh, how much to water a certain field for its optimal yield, and what what sort of fertilizer is the best kind of fertilizer to use, and how to make the best fertilizer. And these things only came to be through our technolo- te- te- technological revolution, our industrial revolution, not to not to spite it, and so again, uh, where these Malthusians uh, had it wrong is again they vastly underestimate and and chronically underestimate our ability to problem solve and adapt and overcome and. Uh, anybody who who's old enough old enough to remember for instance uh in the seventies where uh the 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 problem quote unquote was going to be not global warming but global cooling It was predicted that we were entering a new ice age, and in fact, the one thing that could forestall the ice age uh, at least temporarily was uh our use of greenhouse gases and they that the greenhouse gases might save us from the ice age for a number of years and of course that alarmism went out um or went all through uh most of the 70s and and then it and then you had all al gore make all these predictions there would be no more uh, arctic ice after a certain time and that was like 15 years ago he made all these predictions uh 15 years ago and um today we still have snow on mount kilimanjaro we still have the arctic and antarctic ice fields year round they don't melt um the ozone layer repairs itself and So you have all these predictions. And so despite having all these predictions wrong, uh, they they keep um, going on with their climate change alarmism. And a lot of that, unfortunately, is due to this very anti-human philosophy um, that I talked about where uh, it's, again, a deeply immoral philosophy for the reasons I I went over they deny our ability to for life um, they deny the value of human life and and one of the things I I talked about in the uh, in the article I just read is um, could you imagine a world leader that uh, held such beliefs, and unfortunately they do. Uh, Trudeau, uh, the Prime Minister of Canada, is one of those people that believe uh, people are the problem, and uh, so he's trying to limit his country's um, farm production and cut back on their farm, their ability um, to farm, in particular Uh, their uh, cattle their their ability to raise cattle and of course the same thing is going on in the Netherlands and then you have in uh, most of Europe uh, particularly in Germany they're rethinking their commitment to uh, alternative fuels um, or or, or alternative energy sources like wind and solar because if the wind doesn't blow and the sun isn't shining, then you don't have the kind of reliable energy that you need. And so, the theory is that, of course, what the uh, climate change alarmists or climate change proponents would tell you is that, oh, well, now we just have batteries, and that the batteries can save the energy, and so the sun doesn't need to be shining 24 hours a day. But still... Again, it works in theory, but in practice, um, I'm here to tell you that fossil fuels still make up the difference. And when wind and solar is not enough, um, particularly in in the winter, um, you had last year, or I think maybe earlier this year, uh, a really uh, long freezing spell in Texas, and a lot of the windmills froze up, and they were generating no energy for that period. And, of course, being winter, of course, you have um, less and less sunlight during the day because you're dealing, of course, with uh, less daylight hours, less hours of daylight and day during the winter in the Northern Hemisphere. And so you have these two problems where you can't get enough solar because you have the shortened days and you're not And you don't have enough wind because the cold weather is freezing up the turbines. And now you're not producing enough uh, energy to meet the demands of your people. And you can also see um, right now uh, we're about a week away. We're less than a week away from the beginning of winter. And I'm sure it's already uh, starting to get cold in parts of Europe. What are they going to do when it gets really cold? And so now we have this experiment to see uh, just with how little natural gas and oil uh, countries can survive on, okay, during the winter. And what if it's a harsh winter in, say, Germany or the Netherlands? What are they going to do? Well obviously in, in Germany there's already in other uh, countries in Europe, there's already rationing of fossil fuels. Uh, they've mandated the maximum and minimum temperatures that they can have on their thermostats and there's laws you know you can't exceed a certain amount on your thermostat um, or you you'd suffer, you suffer the penalty of law, right You'll be punished by the law. And that's, and then they, of course they're doing strict regulation of how much industry can use, so industry is only allotted so much um units of energy that they're allowed to use um so that there's enough left over for the uh people for um regular people for their home use, and so now you're getting into a vicious cycle where you cannot produce the goods and services that uh, improve the quality of life, particularly of the Europeans, uh, but also ours because, you know, we have trade with them. And so now you're in this vicious cycle where you diminish the quality of life and uh, you may even uh, be risking the lives of many thousands of Europeans. And so the leaders um, who subscribe to this uh, very anti-human, very anti-industrial and de-industrial uh, philosophy, they um, they're play, They're having this very dangerous experiment uh, where they get to find out just how little energy a country can s- survive a winter on. Okay. And I think, unfortunately, that is going to be their undoing. And I say unfortunately because um, it would be nice for them just to apply reason. Like most of us can say, you can't cut, uh, you can't uh, just abandon nuclear power plants. And you cannot just abandon coal fire plants. And you cannot just re, re, um, rely on wind and solar, particularly during the winter months when you need this energy the most in some places. You cannot rely on these alternative form of energies. They just cannot make up the difference. Um, they cannot uh, make up for the lack of enough fuel oil. Okay, and then you have the situation, of course, with Russia and the pipeline. And we tried to warn them in the United States. Trump tried to warn them o- about their over-reliance on fossil fuels coming from Russia. And at the time, you know, they laughed at us and snickered. And their intellectuals said, uh, what, what a fool uh, this Trump guy is. And he doesn't know what he's talking about. Well, it turns out that, yeah... Um now there's a war uh between Russia and Ukraine and he's cutting off the oil supply, or at least the direct oil supply from there uh through the pipeline um going into Europe. And so now we have the just the situation that Trump tried to warn us warn the Europeans about and they laughed at him. Uh unfortunately they're not going to be laughing uh, this winter. And it is unfortunate because um, rather than give credence to someone maybe they didn't like, maybe they didn't particularly like uh, Trump, but um, he, in this case at least, knew what was good for them. And they they said, no, 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 we're fine with our wind and soul. We'll be fine and and we, we can rely on this... Uh, gas from Russia, we don't, you know, and, you know, we tried to tell them, and they didn't listen, and unfortunately, I think they're going to learn the hard way, uh, that maybe they should have listened, and then they were already, um, through their actions, when Germany, again, um, puts back online their their coal plants, and their nuclear power plants, now, that's at least a tacit admission that, yeah, maybe you were right. Maybe we shouldn't have done this. And uh, you have other countries, again, following suit. And unfortunately, in the meantime, though, a lot of people are going to have to suffer immensely. And that's really the unfortunate part. Because a lot of the suffering that they're going through was predictable. It was predicted. And it was foreseeable. And it was Preventable, um, and and the same thing goes with food shortages. Um, you have a country like Ukraine, um, which is like the breadbasket of Europe, a large uh, food supplier of the continent, and also the next largest food supplier being the Netherlands. Um, they're self-immolating their agricultural sector, particularly when it comes to raising cattle, because cattle are a no-go with the environmentalists because of their methane emissions. And so they're, they'd rather you eat uh, bugs than eat beef. And so they're trying to normalize that. And that's something that's almost a meme now is, you know, uh, this um, Klaus Schwab saying, you will eat the bugs um and I don't know whether he actually said that or not, but um, that has become a mean nonetheless. And I think that uh, speaks directly to the sort of things that he and the World Economic Forum are for. And again, it was the World Economic Forum uh, in league with a lot of banks, which were made, comprised the the uh, World Economic Forum. Or in league with each other, uh, they're the ones who, in their wisdom, suggested that Sri Lanka should uh, invest all of this money and take all this mo- loan money, uh, but don't invest it in necessarily in modern farming methods, but invest it in uh, purely organic farms. And they wanted to invest all this into, you know, quote unquote, social justice um, causes. And so they did that and the country went bankrupt and they, the people went hungry because they listened to the fools that gave them advice. Now they, they had their great ESG score. Um, you know, they had a, they had like a 98% of some ungodly high ESG score. And what do they have to show for it? Their economy collapsed. And that led to their government being overthrown and chaos in that country. And now, even after all that, you have similar things taking place in the Netherlands. Um, even though you have the farmers, they're going on strike, and there's a lot of, a uh, bit of civil unrest, particularly among the farmers in that country. Um, they are not too pleased with the leadership of that country and again you have this uh self immolation um in service to this nihilistic anti human anti industrial point of view and you know despite the track the dismal track record that you can see just in recent years Sri Lanka and everywhere this central planning by the experts um was done you see that in the soviet union a lot of the soviet union you know the ukrainians starved to death millions of ukrainians starved to death uh even though they're creating a lot of food because the uh the soviets uh figured it was you know the uh the farmers the professional farmers were getting just too rich and too powerful and they had to be checked and so they had to be eliminated. And so a lot of privately owned farms in Russia and the Soviet Union, Greater Soviet Union, were destroyed and people starved because of it. And so and then you can find all these examples in recent history, 21st century history, and 20th century history again and again. You have these collectivists, um socialist and the Communists uh, look what happened to China. Uh, their people were starving for uh, decades in the 70s and 80s going into the 90s. and finally they turned to some limited uh, form of free market economy and and they've kind of um, allowed for a tiny bit of capitalism. A very controlled amount of capitalism within their society, and that's what saved them. It wasn't anything uh, communist, that, you know. It wasn't any anything Marxist. They did. It was actually what they did that kind of refuted their original premise of Marxism and Mao's. Okay, so you have uh, all of these actions, despite the disastrous, dismal history of what happens when you interfere. Um, Because it it turns out um, that people with a profit motive uh, know how to get things done. They know how to get the most out of their farms. Uh, They're certainly not going to allow their cities to go underwater. Um, And they know how to get the most out of their energy sectors. And... It's only through government interference that have has caused all these problems, but still they persist. And again, it's a deeply seated. It's a combination of deeply seated uh, misunderstanding of basic economics, basic human nature that people want to act for their own benefit and their own best interest. They're not. They're not interested in doing what the state tells them to do. Um, people will do more if they believe it's in their best self-interest uh, for themselves. And in a capitalist society, you have to be producing value. And so you have to be able to provide a good and service under the free market economy and capitalism. Um, for you, if you want to get rich, you have to be providing someone with what they need. And so you have a great incentive to produce as much as you can and to to have the most effective and efficient production methods possible. Now, under a socialist or a collectivist economy, you don't have that. You don't have that profit motive. You don't have that self-interest. And so you have people, they're not going to work as hard for the state as they will for themselves and for their own family. And that is just fundamental human nature. And one of the uh main hubrises of socialists and communists is that they believe that they can change fundamental human nature and that they can uh create this utopia where if you just um use enough carrot and and stick and you condition uh human beings enough that they'll eventually fall in line and that they'll willingly uh, subscribe to this utopia society. Of course, it's all nonsense every time it's been tried, to the degree it's been tried. It's mainly failed. And it's only, uh, like in the case of China, when they regress and adopt a limited form of free market and capitalism, that they finally um, at least get out of the... uh, Vicious cycle of poverty and starvation, and are allowed to move forward. um but that that's a lesson that's lost on most of the leaders today that come from the left um, you your trudeaus and your uh, leaders of many of the countries in Europe. but now you're also seeing a backlash. you're seeing Um, uh, nationalist uh, leaders in Italy, um, they have an Italian first agenda in that country um, because they saw what happened with the globalist agenda and they saw the failure of the European agenda being ruled from Brussels. And they said, you know what? Let's take care of Italians first. And you had similar things in Hungary. The Hungari- Hungarians also said, you know, let's take care of, let's adopt a, a Hungary first uh, policy. And and that's all stems from the overbearing weight of the huge b- bureaucracy that comes from Brussels and comes from the European Union. Um, a lot of it being led by the same Uh, Leftist thought leaders that lead us to believe that uh, humankind itself is a cancer upon the earth and upon its uh, humankind. And it's that kind of nihilistic and backwards and um, just uh, immoral um, worldview that a lot of these countries are now kind of rising up against and of course we saw that in the United States with the rise of Trump. Trump was a response to all of this leftist foolishness that we saw and we saw how it wasn't working and so we elected Donald Trump and but then the uh, left regained its powers and we're able to, I would say, manipulate the system for lack of a better word, and you, and so you have a President Biden. President Biden turns out not to be doing so well, in the opinion of many, and a large pr- plurality of Americans don't believe that the president, President Biden, is doing a good job, uh, and what he, and what they're. Have a problem with in particular is when they when he follows the leftist line and now even though he hasn't gone as far as like trudeau has in canada with stifling um human rights and uh individual rights and free speech and stuff like that that's because we have a strong constitution that is a barrier and you have also the separation of powers that serves as a barrier from him Acquiring the kind of power that someone like Justin Trudeau was able to acquire in Canada or the Prime Minister of Australia or New Zealand um, or the leaders of the Netherlands who I believe have adopted this disastrous uh, foolish policy of destroying their own agricultural sector. Once you lose that agricultural sector, it's very hard, almost impossible, to get back. Um, and that's the other problem, is, you know, it's fine, uh, you know, to do as an experiment. The problem is that when the experiment fails, you can't just go back to the old ways of doing things. Because, you know, once you shut down a, a coal fire plant, once you stop producing some of these chemicals, like the ammonia for the fertilizer... Uh, it's hard or almost impossible to restart that. Um, that's just the nature of the industry. And so we do things like um, abandon the use of nitrogen-based fertilizers or ammonia-based fertilizers at our own peril. Um, and it's experiment that if we find that it's failing, and even if we put the brakes on that experiment, uh, it's very hard to go back to what we had because it's not just something that you flip a switch and then you return to your normal output of fertilizer, for instance. You know, it doesn't work that way. Um, so you have these people, uh, these experts, that, You have know, the so-called tyranny of the experts, um, that basically have form this uh, totalitarian mass formation, they might call. And it's instead of the totalitarianism of the 20th century, which is similar, now it's the uh, uh, tyranny of the experts. So it's not dictators and cults of personality per se, although there are those two. Uh, It's oligarchies. It's huge globalist business concerns, it's the World Economic Forum, it's the World Bank and other institutions uh, filled with experts who believe that they know how to run things better than the people actually running them, uh, better than the people who get paid and have a vested interest in running them right. Um, And so that is a basic problem. altogether with uh, leftism but particularly when it comes to climate change alarmism and a lot of that again is fed just to uh, summarize and wrap things up it's fed by this deeply anti-human anti-industrial de-industrial philosophy this urge to de-industrialize and a lot of that, I believe, is being done because it grants certain groups or certain individuals or groups of individual individuals power. Because if you, can, if you control, for instance, to conduct the um, production of energy, you can control a population. If you can control their health care, you, you can do a lot to control that population. If you control their food supply... You can control a population, and they want control and power, and that's what they're after. And so they're using all of this um, leftism, these leftist ideas, this idea that um, of climate change alarmism, and um, all and uh, all of these things that uh, come from the left the uh, COVID-19 alarmism and this um, dependency upon authoritarianism to get things done the way they think uh, things should be done and if only we didn't weren't so willful and if only we just uh, listened to the experts we could have this utopian society already and that's what the left believes in a nutshell uh, but some of it, as I mentioned, crosses over into a, like I said, a deeply anti-human, deeply anti-industrial, uh, basically immoral, um, framework of governance. And so that, it, it is us, uh, up to us to resist it and to call it out to the best of our ability. And like I said, the first, uh, um, thing to uh, solving a problem is identifying a problem. And so hopefully, I've helped identify the problem and why, moreover, why it's a problem. And so that's important for us to remember because I don't think we want to live in the kind of dystopia that is a logical um, result of some of these things that they, they want to do, uh, particularly the uh, leftist elite intellectuals want for us. I don't think we want to live in such a dystopic society because I don't think it's going to uh, turn out as a plan unless they're playing just to be in power and, and the utopian society is just something that, that they're telling us very tell, that they're telling us to go along. I think there are some people that are doing, doing it just for the power and, and the money in some cases. So that is um, where I am. My thought is today. And so I just wanted to bring this up because it crosses over. It's more than just bad politics. Uh, Some of it actually gets to quite destructive um, ideas when they're implemented. And... Uh, people's lives may be at stake and we're looking at the beginning of winter as I speak and we're about to embark on a very dangerous experiment to see just how how little energy uh, Europe can live uh, through a winter with and I don't think uh, in some cases we're going to like the results of that experiment and so I'm going to leave it there. And thank you very much for listening and watching. Thank you for uh, following the Dystopic Journal. Those of you who uh, follow the Dystopic Journal, particularly on Rumble. And please uh, listen to the LR Podcast. Uh, follow the LR Podcast, LR Podcast on Getter. And follow Liberty Relearned on Facebook Follow me, JP Mac, on uh, Parlor. And until then, until uh, I see you again, which may be around Christmas, uh, please uh, stay healthy, happy, and free.